Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, uh, let's Mark chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 14. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, he has been raised. For it was Herod who, was, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he, heard of, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. For he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. If there is a fact that we need to get clear about in our minds, in our hearts, with respect to the world at large, it's the fact that the world hates the truth. It hates the truth. And even though most people you talk to will tell you, they will say that that they are seeking the truth. People will say that they're committed to the truth. They will say that they want to know the truth. People will say that they will follow the evidence and go wherever it leads to the truth. But the fact still remains, the world at large hates the truth. Culture hates the truth. Our society hates the truth. That's why we live in a post-modern world. Most people don't realize we live in a world that has, that, that, that has uncritically accepted the philosophy known as postmodernism, which essentially is rooted in the idea that there is no objective standard for truth, that there is no authoritative point of reference for ultimate truth, right? In other words, as the popular phrase goes, truth is relative. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? Or how about the expression, you know, your truth is not my truth, right? What's true for you might not be necessarily true for me, or you just need to go find your own truth. These are the things that we hear and continue to hear. 
And that is the philosophy adopted by the educational system and, and even the government and, and universities and corporations and the media and Hollywood. And at this moment in history, most of the people in the Western world, that there is no objective standard of truth. This is a, a thought that's even adopted by many people who claim to be Christians. That's why so many people, you will hear so many Christians, so many people who say that they're Christians say things like, well, you know what? I'm, a, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I support a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. Which reveals that there is a disconnect from the truth. Because the truth is that abortion results in the deliberate and intentional ending of an innocent human life. Correct me if I'm wrong. It is deliberate and intentional. People choose to do it. They make appointments to do it. People don't accidentally end up in an abortion clinic. It's a decision that they make. It's deliberate. And it brings about the end of an innocent human. It's innocent because it's not been born to do anything wrong. right? And it is a human life. Three weeks, one day, after conception, the heart starts to beat. Nine weeks, the baby has fingers, toes, eyeballs, and a mouth, and it sucks its thumb. It's a human being. Reason and science overwhelmingly agree on this fact. It's human. So it is the deliberate, intentional ending of a human, innocent human life, which, by the way, is the very definition of premeditated murder. The only difference is that this is cloaked and disguised in political language. So when a person says, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I support a woman's right to have an abortion, what they're saying is, I'm personally opposed to the intentional murder of a child, but I support the right of mothers to go kill their children. That's the truth, no matter how we want to disguise the truth. Now, I realize, without question, that some of you hear this and you recoil, right? And you do so in fear or maybe dread or even anger. Right? And the reason why you recoil is because you either bought into this, this worldview and you've embraced this worldview, or two, culture has put so much pressure on you that you don't even want to talk about this. That you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings at all. You don't want to make anybody dislike you, and so naturally you're uncomfortable when someone speaks plainly about the truth. This is a hot-button issue in our culture. If there is a hot-button issue, this is the one, right? And, and, and so nobody wants to talk about it because, because you feel this immense pressure by those who push back against this truth. And the reason why there's so much pressure is because the world hates the truth. If you don't believe me, they don't, if you don't believe me that it hates the truth, then just do one little experiment. Go stand in front of, in front of an abortion clinic with a, a pro-life sign and see what happens. You will witness firsthand the hatred that the world has for the truth. There's a young lady in our church who I'm very proud of. She wears a t-shirt that says pro-life. And when she does, and she goes, to the, goes into town, you, would, you, would, you, couldn't, you can imagine the dirty looks she gets all the time. So much so, there was an older man came up to her and said, you know, you're really brave to wear that shirt. It just says pro-life. It didn't say anything else. It just says the words pro-life. And he says, you're brave to wear that shirt. Why is that brave? Because the world absolutely hates the truth. But the thing is, the world might hate the truth, but it's not like the world doesn't know the truth. The world knows the truth, but it suppresses the truth. 
For example, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that. They know the truth, but they suppress the truth. The world knows the truth. The world knows that a baby in the womb is just that, a human baby. The world knows that abortion is murder. The world knows that marriage is designed by God to be between a man and a woman. The world knows that it is God's will all the time for couples to find some way to make it work and stay married. The world knows that it is God's will for, for relationships to stay together. The, God, the, the world knows that God created mankind male and female. The world knows that, that mankind is inherently wicked and not good, as we'd like to te- tell ourselves. The world knows that sex before marriage and promiscuity and adultery are destructive to the individual, but also to the family and also to the society, and it ultimately dishonors God. The world knows that intoxication, regardless whether it comes from a liquid, pill, powder, or plant, is still sin. The world knows that there's nothing in this life that is free, right? The world knows that those who get rewarded for not working won't work. The world knows ultimately that there is a God in heaven and that all of us are personally accountable to that God. The world knows the truth, but it suppresses the truth. Paul goes on and says, he goes, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's obvious because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, and although they knew God, again, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of God for immortal for the for the immortal exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. The world hates the truth, and it's obvious all the way around us. Did you know that the fastest way that a human being can get banned on Twitter, the, the social media platform, and, and, and I'm not making this up, you can actually try this experiment if you'd like to, but just type the words, men cannot be women and women cannot be men, and see how long it takes for somebody to turn you in and for, for Twitter to ban you. They will absolutely ban you. And they ban conservatives, and they ban people who are liberals who have that point of view as fast as they can because because they want to silence people from telling the truth. They silence people who disagree. And and, and it's the same in, like, Ontario, Canada. A man has been ordered by the court to not speak to the media about his daughter who identifies as a boy. And they said to him, right, that if he calls her a girl, even in the context of an interview where he's talking about his own experience and his own beliefs and his own feelings, that if he talks not to her but about her in that manner, that it's considered family violence against her, that, that this child, this, it's child abuse, and he can be brought up on charges for speaking his mind about the truth that she was born biologically a girl. Or how about the violence or the threats in the United States committed against those who, who are pro-life and publicly communicate the truth to the unborn? People are being physically assaulted on universities. They're being physically assaulted in front of abortion clinics. They're having their property destroyed. They're having their lives and their livelihoods threatened. And, and the thing is, is this is not just a fringe movement of people who, who are doing this. This is, this is even famous people, including 
a well-known um, man from Pennsylvania, State Representative Brian Sims, a member of the state legislature, offers a reward to discover the identity of several pro-life supporters in order to get information about them so he can make it public so that other people can harass them. In fact, watch this real quick clip. Hi everyone, uh, Representative Brian Sims here, and I am outside the Planned Parenthood in southeastern Pennsylvania. Oh, no, they're leaving now. What we've got here is a bunch of protesters, a bunch of pseudo-Christian protesters who've been out here shaming young girls for being here. Hi. And so here's the deal. I've got $100 to anybody who will identify any of these three. So we're I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. So look, a bunch of more. white people standing out in front of a Planned Parenthood, shaming I'm people. Really There's nothing Christian about what you're doing. I'm nothing Christian at all about what you're doing. Hi, nothing Christian or loving or godly about what you're doing. So I've got $100 to anybody who will identify who this is. $100. See if you got some friends out here. 100 bucks. It'd be easier if you just give me your name and your address. Uh, um, Rich, come on. Rich, 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 where are you from? Uh, Rich, what makes you think that it's your job to tell women what's right for their bodies? And the truth is, I'm not really asking because I don't care. Shame on you. Representative from the state of Pennsylvania, he's offering money for someone to identify the teens in this video so that, that he can publish their names and addresses so that people can publicly shame them. It's called doxing, by the way. It's a new phenomenon, but when someone says something that you don't like, then what you do is you go and you investigate them and you find out where they work, where they live, and who their family is, and then you then sick the, the public at large on them, and people come and, and protest them and threaten them, and, and because of this, many people are receiving death threats, uh, children are having, being phone call, you know, having phone calls and text messages uh, sent to them saying that their parents should have aborted them. Families are being threatened with violence and rape. And, and this is just one issue, right? In fact, in England, which you know, really um, is, is even worse, is, is people who publicly preach the gospel are being arrested if they preach in the presence of, of, of Muslims in the Muslim community, right? Because it's considered racist and hate speech to preach the gospel in earshot of Muslim people in Western Europe and in, in England. The world hates the truth, right? And, and, this, and it will violently do whatever it takes to suppress the truth. And that's the truth, right? And, and, that's, and there's nothing new about that, though. This is not, it shouldn't really surprise us because this has been happening for all time. The world has been hating the truth and violently suppressing the truth since Cain and Abel. In fact, that's what we're going to see in the text here today, is this violent suppression of the truth. In fact, there are three components in the text today that we're going to see this morning that can universally be applied to every era of human history from beginning all the way up to now. Three common elements. Number one is someone who boldly proclaims the truth. Whether it's a prophet, an evangelist, a pro-lifer, uh, an ordinary human being who preaches the gospel, somebody declares the truth. Number two, you will see the hardened, hard-hearted, violent response by those who hate the truth. And then three, which is probably the most discouraging, is you will see the picture of those who are sympathetic and even open to the truth, but eventually cave into cultural pressure and end up denying and subverting the truth. These are the three common things that we're going to see you know, throughout history. And we're going to see them in this text today. So turn with me to Mark chapter 6, beginning in 14. And we'll quickly get through this. 
It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And so Jesus' ministry, as we remember, um, was growing very rapidly, as we've seen through the, the first six chapters of the book of Mark. And, and now, right, the word, the, the word about Christ is spreading, and what he's doing, it reaches all the way to Herod's palace, nearly 120 miles away, right, which is really quite an accomplishment for, for a place that didn't have cars. You know, they, they basically walked everywhere. And then it says, someone said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And so this news about Christ was spreading fast. People are hearing about these healings and him casting out demons. And they've probably even heard about the story about him calming the storm. And maybe even how he rose a, a little girl from the dead. And so people's imaginations hearing these stories are, are alive with speculation of how this might be possible. And so they begin to offer supernatural explanations that make sense to them. Some thought that John the Baptist came back from the dead. He was, a, he was a man of God, and God you know, brought him back. Other people thought that he was Elijah. If you remember the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, right? he was a prophet of God who, who wielded great power, and he was taken up into heaven, and he never actually died. He, he, Elisha actually witnessed him being taken up in a chariot, and he never died. And so people believed that he would return and he would do so in power. Other people thought maybe that he's just like finally God sending an, a, like a prophet of old. You know, someone like you know, Elijah or, or Isaiah or Daniel or, or Ezekiel. Somebody that, that it, what is there to, to, preach the, uh, to proclaim uh, the, the word of God and exercise great power. Well, regardless of what they thought, what they knew, something amazing was happening. Historically speaking, this, is, this, this points to the fact that something amazing was happening in the area of Galilee, and people were hearing about it far and wide. And then Herod himself heard of it, it says, and said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so again, this news reaches, reaches of Jesus' ministry and his power reaches the palace of Herod, and he himself then has his own opinion on the matter. He personally believes this is the work of John the Baptist. And the reason why he believes that is because he had killed John the Baptist. And now God, he believes, is punishing him by bringing him back from the dead. If you remember early on, right, right before Jesus began his ministry, it says that John the Baptist was arrested. And he was arrested for calling out Herod and his sin. And ultimately, he had John put to death, um, even though that he was a holy and righteous man. And so... As he begins to hear about these, this miracle worker doing these incredible things, immediately he thinks, you know, John the Baptist must be coming back to haunt him. And he believes this for really ba three basic reasons here. First of all, he believes this because of the supernatural nature of the acts, right? Because nobody can deny that this is supernatural stuff, right? And Herod being aware, not aware who, he's not aware of who Jesus is. He's never heard his name. He just assumes that since these are miracles, it must be John back from the dead. He obviously is a man of God, righteous, wrongfully killed. And so God now is vindicating him by, by bringing him back. Secondly, he probably thought that this was John because he had a guilty conscience. As we're going to see, Herod came before he killed him, had a, came to have respect for John. And he actually had a reverential fear for, for John. Right? He actually kind of liked the guy, and he actually liked listening to him. And so he didn't want to kill him, right? Because he knew that this man was righteous and, you know, and, and godly, and so his conscience was, was guilt-stricken. Right? In fact, he, he was probably, John was probably on his mind quite a bit, and then he hears this news, and he thinks it's him. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, he probably thought this was John the Baptist because Jesus preached a similar message as John. 
If you remember, you know, Jesus, um, you know, did, I mean, if you remember John, when he began his, his, um, his work, he began to preach a message of repentance for sinners, to repent and get baptized. Well, Jesus then came and preached a similar message, right? What did it say? It, it, it said, repent, or it, it said, the time is now, the kingdom is here, repent and believe the gospel. That's what we see in John, in Mark chapter 1. Repentance is a common thread between Jesus and John's message. And then as we saw two weeks ago, Jesus <clears throat> sends out his disciples, and what do they do? They did miracles, and what do they preach? That people should repent. And so this message just keeps ringing throughout Galilee. Repent, repent, repent. A message of repentance accompanied by, by miracles, right? And, and this is what Herod was hearing. And so he thought John the Baptist must have come from the dead, right? Because Herod had been, was more than likely called by John to repent. And he refused to do so. And so his conscience has stricken him in, in hearing about this miracle worker from Galilee healing people and casting, you know, uh, and, and calling sinners to repentance. So Mark tells us this news um, of Jesus' ministry reaching over 120 miles in Capernaum to Herod's palace. And now, where, where he now believes that John the Baptist has risen from the dead, right? But now Mark takes the opportunity to, to kind of give us a little flashback. This is the flashback point in the movie where where we get to, get to see a little bit more about the story of what happened between John the Baptist and Herod. And so in verse 17 it says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So just a little bit of background to understand what's happening here. Herod the Great, if you remember that name, Herod the Great was the man who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. If you remember the Christmas story, you know, the wise men came to Herod and, you know, and he said, hey, go find him and tell me where he's at because I want to worship him too, but secretly he wanted to kill him. And then he ends up finding out that they didn't come back, so he sends soldiers to Bethlehem and kills all the little babies in the community. All right. Well, he actually had several of his own children, and each of them had their own little district of power in the region. And Herod Antipas is one of his sons, the one that we're talking about here, and he was the ruler of, of Galilee. And this man, um, you know, wielded quite a bit of power. Now, the text calls him a king, but he was really subject to the Roman government, right? And, and, and he was more like a regional government governor, but he still was pretty powerful. And he originally was married um, to the daughter of, of King Aretas IV, and, and he had a very kind of like up and down you know, relationship with, 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 that, with his father-in-law. It was kind of a tepid relationship. In fact, the marriage was probably a political one to, to solve some political problems. But, but Herod, over the course of time, fell in love with a woman named Herodias. Who, by the way, is, is the wife of one of his half-brothers, Herod Philip, right? So this is his sister-in-law. And if that's not weird enough and gross enough, right, he was, she was also the daughter of one of his other half-brothers, Aristobulus, which means that she was his niece, right? She was a blood relative on, her, on, on his father's side. Notice her name, Herodias, Herod. She gets her name from her grandpa, just like he got his name from his dad, Herod the Great. And history reveals that they encountered each other in the city of Rome, and Herod Antipas, he seduced Herodias and convinced her to leave her husband, Philip, and subsequently divorced his wife, and the two got married to each other, which, 
was not only sinful and against the law, right? But it was also dangerous because Herod's divorce ended up leading to war with his father-in-law, the father-in-law's country. So talk about an unholy union, right? Um, then John the Baptist comes along, right? As he's trying to keep it quiet and try not to make a big deal about it, John the Baptist comes along and unapologetically confronts both of them in their sin. And for Herod, this was troubling for a couple of reasons. Number one, John the Baptist publicly calling him out was politically dangerous because Herod's subjects know that his, his foibles are really putting them all in danger because they're about to go to war over it. And this could be politically dangerous for him. It could get him assassinated. And so, he, and so he's, he's worried about it politically, right? That's number one. But number two, the, I think the important one is this is embarrassing for his wife, right? Because notice what it says in, in verse 19. It says, and Herodias had a grudge against him and, and wanted to put him to death. See, for, for her, this was, this was not political. This was personal. This was a personal vendetta. For Herod, it was a political thing, and frankly, he really didn't even care if people thought he was moral or not. In fact, right, he was known very well around the region for his licentious, immoral life. It just kind of, everybody knew it, right? In fact, it was kind of like a badge of honor that this bad boy could be so, so bad, right? But for her, this was personal, because this was, this cut all the way down into her identity of how she saw herself, See, she wanted to see herself as the virtuous queen, kind of like Queen Esther. She wanted to see herself as, 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 as the, the, the wife, you know, the noble wife of the king. She wanted to see herself and her decisions as good and right and just, right? But John reminds her of the truth, the truth that she is in an incestuous relationship with her uncle, that she is an adulteress because she left her husband to be with him. And that because of that, she is really the kind of like the most despised kind of woman in Jewish culture. And that is the truth. And she hated the truth. She didn't want to be reminded of the truth. She wanted to suppress the truth and ignore the truth. But John was out here publicly speaking the truth. So what? She wants him dead. Because she hated him and the truth. The fact of the matter is sinners hate the truth because darkness hates the light. Jesus himself said in in John chapter 3, everybody remembers John 3.16, but John chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. People love their sin. They, they love it. And they know that their sin is ugly and vile and destructive, but they suppress that truth. They love their sin and don't want to acknowledge the truth. And so when you shine the light of truth in someone's life like that, oftentimes the response is violent. That's why people react so violently as protesters to people who are pro-life in front of abortion clinics. That's why you see people who are struggling with their, 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 their identity, transgender people, publicly freak out and lose their minds when someone even accidentally calls them the, the wrong biological pronoun. You know people get fired for that nowadays, by the way? People get fired for that. People even in Europe, actually in, in Scotland, you can go to jail for that. People get physically assaulted for those kinds of things. That's why people get sued for not allowing, for not, for not allowing their services to be used for same-sex weddings. The reality is if, you, if somebody doesn't want to offer you business, then you just go somewhere else, right? But, but no, they, they, they sue. Why? Because a refusal is an acknowledgement that their lifestyle is a sin. 
It's a reminder of the truth, and they get offended. That's why they seek to ruin people's lives. Have you noticed that? It's not good enough for people to say, you know, to try to admit, make them admit they're wrong. It's we want to ruin people. We want to, we want to destroy them. We want to take everything that they have. People love their sin, and they violently push back when confronted with the truth. And that's where she is. <laughs> she hates the truth so much, she wants to kill him. But then notice, it says, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he heard him gladly. Even though that, that she wanted John the Baptist dead, Herod just wouldn't kill him. And notice it says that he feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Now, I want you to think about this. This, this is Herod, the ruler of the territory. He does what he pleases, and, and he has the power to do anything he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And John, politically speaking, is a nobody and really has no power. In fact, he's in prison. Why, then, is Herod afraid of him? Well, the reason why he's afraid is because even though the truth hurts him, it also awakens his conscience. Notice that it says that he was afraid knowing that John was a righteous and holy man. He knows, right? He knows that John is righteous, and he knows that he is not. He knows that John's telling the truth, and standing there in front of this man, Herod, think about this, in his opulence and his splendor and, and all of his arrogance and with all of his money and all of his power, he cannot overcome the power of the truth. And the truth has awakened his conscience because that's what the truth does. The truth, yes, it stings, but it also soothes. The truth comforts, yes, but it also draws. The truth offends, but it also comforts. It cuts, but it also heals. Notice it says, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. The truth of John's words brought both conviction and gladness, because that's what the truth does. Once you get past the pain of the truth, then you can begin to embrace the healing. And haven't you experienced that in your own life once you finally decide, okay, I'm going to accept the truth, I understand the truth, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just, just take it because it is the truth, that you can finally move on and begin to heal. That's why we cannot be afraid to tell the truth. Yes, the truth hurts, but the truth is what brings life. And, and sin and the lie is what brings death. What we see here in the text is Herod's heart is being pierced through with the truth and his conscience is being awakened and the light is beginning to come on and, and hope is beginning to dawn in him. But unfortunately, for him it's short-lived. It doesn't get a chance to grow because notice what happens in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. An opportunity presented itself for his wife because it was Herod's birthday and he was ready to party. And notice this is a men's party. Okay? It's him and his buddies. And Herod was known all around for his raucous, depraved celebrations. I mean, he was a rich man with no moral compass and no one that had the power to tell him what to do. And so he did what he wanted to do. And so his parties were well known and infamous. Right? There'd be plenty of alcohol and adult entertainment if you understand my meaning there. And this was a perfect setup then for him. It says in verse 22, Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. 
Now, if you understand what's really actually happening here, your stomach would turn. Because this is unheard of. The daughter of the queen. The daughter of the queen coming in to be the entertainment for a men's stag party. She came in and she danced for them. This was, that, was, that was only for the professional dancers and, the, and the, the prostitutes to do. Not the daughter of the queen. But here, the daughter of the queen, his stepdaughter, she comes into this debauched environment and dances for them. And most scholars agree that this was not your ballet recital kind of dancing. Right? It was very sensual and probably involved, you know, very little clothing. This was, this was taboo. And Herod and his friends were pleased to watch her, right? They were pleased to watch his stepdaughter dance this way, right? And if that disgusts you, right, if that turns your stomach, what you have to realize is the world has been and continues to be horribly depraved, right? According to, according to um, a website called Fight the New Drug, which is a secular website that promotes the awareness of the destructive nature of, of pornography, every year publishes an update on the industry, like you know how big the industry is, how much money is being spent. And it also publishes the top 10 search terms that people will use. And always in the top 10 search terms in the internet, when people begin looking for particular genres of, of, of this illicit stuff, words like teen, young, and incest are in the top 10. Okay, so what that means, if it's a top search terms, that means tens of millions of people are looking for these subjects actively. So much so that they're actually going places, you know, that their internet activity is not being hidden. Does that make sense? Right? That's the truth. The world is broken and people are depraved. And it's been like this from, from the very beginning, from the fall. King Herod and his drunk friends are pleased by this girl's lewd behavior. And it says... And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. You hear that? Now, obviously, he's not literally saying you're going to get half of everything I want, right? But what he's saying is it's a figure of speech. He says, girl, you name your price and I'll pay it. You just do that again. His sin is consuming him. And it makes him even more vulnerable. And so she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Now what you need to realize is that this is not accidental. Right? She didn't just wander in there and, and dance and then the king happened to say, name your price. This was deliberate. This was planned. Right? Herodias knew her husband. She'd been married to him. Right? She knows what he's made of. She knows how depraved he is. She knows that he's, he's a sucker for beautiful young ladies. She sent her own daughter in there with this purpose because she knew he would become excited and want more. So it's a trap. Talk about true love, huh? She baited her husband and the trap was sprung. This mother essentially prostituted her own daughter to get what she wanted. And that was to kill Herod. I mean, for Herod to kill John the Baptist. And then it says in verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. She eagerly came back, you know, and named her price. And notice, this, is, this wasn't just her mom's words. She had her own contribution. Her mom said, bring me the head of John the Baptist. The daughter adds these two features. She says, at once. 
Give it to me at once, right now. Because she knew, right? If he sobers up, he calms down, right? he's going to find a way to get out of this. So right now. And then she wanted his head on a silver or on a platter. That was her own touch, by the way. She probably wanted him dead, too. Because she probably hated John as well. She was aware of, her, of John's you know, condemnation of her mom's sin, and it caused her great pain. And it, and it really staggers me, even today, how many parents will, will make their personal business known around their kids where they, when their kids get involved. You see it here in the board all the time. Like, when you can tell when parents are squabbling because their kids don't get along anymore. Isn't it? Have you you've seen this before, right? right? And I understand the instinct, the instinct for, for, to protect family. I get that. But, but it's amazing how people will defend sin, especially when it's the sin of a family member. And we see it all the time. People will defend their family members' addictions. People, parents will always believe that their children were never at fault no matter what happens. Right? Not all parents, but a lot of parents are like that. Like, you know. They can never do anything wrong. Anytime somebody says, hey, your kid was doing this, like, no, it couldn't be. Right? People are always making excuses for their family members' indiscretions and sin. And that's what we see here. Right? And she was glad to help her mom kill John. She gladly asked for his head. How, how depraved is this young woman? Herod wasn't glad, though. It says that the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of the, his oaths and, and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. The Greek in this text here communicates that Herod's sorrow was absolutely real. His conscience inflicted real emotional pain because he knew this was wrong. He knew that John was a righteous man. He knew that he didn't deserve death. He knew his wife was, in, was vindictive. He, he knew that he was manipulated and played by his daughter. He knew that this, this was the this was the wrong thing to do. But he was stuck, right? Because in that moment of lust for his stepdaughter, he gave his word to her that she could have anything she wanted, and she named her price. And now he's beginning to feel pressure, external pressure, because, because he made her this offer in front of his friends, his buddies, people that, that look up to him, right? right? What would they think of him if he, he goes back on his word? What, how would they look at him? How would they treat him after that? I mean, he's the king and he gave his word. Who can you trust if you can't trust the king when he gives his word? Herod began to feel cultural and societal pressure. And to make it worse, right? he didn't even have his life anchored to an objective standard of truth. right? And so he slipped into moral relativism, which allowed him to think that it was better for him to, to kill an innocent man rather than to break his word. Because think about that. He killed an innocent man instead of breaking his word. That's what moral relativism is. And again, this is not new, right? And it's something we see all the time. When people lose their connection to the objective standard of truth, which is the word of God, morality and truth become relative. That's what we hear all the time in our postmodern world. It becomes easy then to justify your actions, right? That's why it's morally better in our culture for a woman to have a right to kill her child rather than sacrificing her future that she had planned because she accidentally got pregnant. It's morally better for a husband to leave his wife rather than struggling through the difficult times in marriage because he's unhappy because nobody should ever be unhappy. It's morally better to affirm your, you know, to, to shack up, right, rather than get married because pff, marriage is a big responsibility. 
It's, it's morally better to affirm your friend or your family's broken sexual appetites in the name of love rather than to tell them what God said about the subject because it hurts their feelings. And man, we can't have that. Most, more, I mean, moral relativism is what happens when you lose the anchor to the truth. And though Herod's conscience was awakened and his conscience was screaming at him, he didn't have in his heart, right, in his life, the anchor of truth. And so truth really became a moving target and just became relative to his circumstance. And it says, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison. He complies. Didn't question it. Just does it. And he does so because of social and cultural pressure and the moral relativistic worldview. And we see it even in the church. We see that same phenomenon in the church. People who bow to the pressure of culture and become morally relative. In fact, perhaps the greatest fight in Christianity today, if there's anything that you remember today, this would be it. Probably the greatest fight in Christianity today is over the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the word of God. Is the Bible inerrant? And is the Bible sufficient as a guide for us here and now in the postmodern world? And there are people in churches across America, pastors and pulpits, who believe and teach that the Bible might be inspired, and it might be inspiring, and it might even be the source of spiritual truth, but it's not inerrant, that it's full of errors, and that it can't be completely trusted in all of its details. The Bible, they say, isn't always true. It's just true in the important things it needs to be true. Well, how do you figure that out? And there are people who believe that the Bible is good, and, but it's not sufficient to deal with the postmodern world. That people say that the Bible doesn't really address the complexities of modern marriage. That it doesn't, it doesn't address you know, the nature of sexual attraction nowadays. Or it doesn't address the roles of men and women in family and in church. And what we need more than the Bible is philosophy. And we need government to help us sort these things out. The Bible itself is not sufficient. Brothers and sisters, if, if we give up inerrancy and sufficiency of the scriptures, there's not even a point to be a Christian anymore. I'm going to say that one more time. If you give up the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, there's not even a point to be a Christian anymore. Right? Because, and I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but what you need to understand is without the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, Christianity simply becomes what you want for it to be. It might as well be Plato in your hands. You're, you just do what you want. And you go to this book and you find some justification for it. You don't like what the Bible says about that subject? Well, that doesn't matter. Paul said that. Jesus didn't say that. We don't listen to Paul. We listen to Jesus. Even though Jesus wrote the whole thing. We don't want to listen to Paul anyway. Right? You don't like what it says about, about, about sexuality? Well, that's okay. Those people didn't even understand what we understand today. right? And so it's different for them. They're not even addressing the issues that we're addressing today. You don't like what the Bible says about a subject? It doesn't matter. Right? You don't have to take those, those, those words too seriously anyway. These were just you know, you know, ancient manuscripts that are collected together, written by nomadic people, and, they're, you know, and most of it's just moral fairy tales anyway. If we deny the sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture, right, of, of the Word of God, we simply disconnect ourselves from the anchor of truth, and Christianity becomes what we want it to be. And it becomes subject to all cultural pressure and societal pressure and moral relativism. And in the end, we're no better off than Herod himself, except we're religious. Now, because, of, because he had no anchor for the truth, and, and he had an innocent man killed rather than take back his word. And notice it says, and he brought his head 
on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Now I want you to notice the unashamed, unabashed celebration of death. She had John, John's head served up like a delicacy on a silver platter, and she presented it to her mom like a trophy. This is another human being. How callous does a person have to be? How much hatred must you have in your heart for someone to have their head, their bloody head served up on a platter and for you to display it like a prized possession? How is that even possible? And as horrific as that sounds, that's the nature of sin. Sin celebrates death. It is unashamed of the spectacle. In fact, this week on social media, I saw a picture of a nine-week-old fetus on some kind of cloth, and it, and it didn't say, you know, whether it was miscarried or, or if it was aborted. It, the point of the picture wasn't any of that. The point of the picture was this, look, this nine-week-old fetus is human. Fingers, toes, eyeballs, mouth, you could see, right? And the person who posted it, that actually reposted it, said, if you read the comments, you will know that the world is depraved. I was like, really? And I read as many comments as I could stomach. And I can't even repeat them because they're so heinous, except to maybe share one with you to give you a clue of how hardened people are. A young woman in her 20s who was somebody's daughter, who was obviously intelligent, college educated, very popular, had lots of friends, professional, I mean, like people you know. She said, and I quote, I would stomp that thing into oblivion with a smile on my face. This is a woman who's made in the image of God. This is a woman who, who, who God has given the ability to have children. And, right? This is a woman that, that God has, has naturally endowed with the instincts to love and nurture and take care of children. A woman who seems like your average woman, just like everyone else. She looks at this, this what was very clearly a human child and says, I would stomp that thing into oblivion with a smile on my face. The world celebrates death. It is very, very calloused. The world is hard-hearted, and it hates, it hates, it hates the truth. It was true then, and it's true now. Now, with that, there are several things I think we need to learn from this text, and I'll go through these quickly. I know you guys are excited to get back out there in the wind, so. <laughs> but the first one is to, is critically important, and it's the fact that the world, though it hates the truth, it needs the truth. Even though that it hates the truth, it needs the truth. The truth must be proclaimed to the world. That is, that is the only hope for the world. The hope for the world is not for us to go out and make friends with the world. That is not its hope. The hope for the world is, is not for us to tiptoe around the subject and the topic of sin. The hope for the world is not for us to bow down to cultural pressures. The hope for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope for the world is for us to boldly confront sin with the word of God. We must help people to see who they are in light of who God himself is. That, that, that they are broken, wretched sinners who love their sin just like we were. And because of that, they are under the condemnation and the judgment and the wrath of God. And one day they will meet him face to face and his justice will be done upon them. And in that day, what Herod did to John the Baptist will look like compassion and mercy by comparison. The wrath of God will be poured out on them, and they by their own will will be cast 
into hell to suffer torment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The world needs to see how depraved it is and the cost of that depravity. We must pierce them through with the word of God. The word of God must cut them to the quick. It must, they must be convicted of their sin because only then will they actually see how really desperate their situation is. It's only in that moment will they see that they need to be saved. Only then will they actually be ready to, for a savior. Only then will they be able to hear and receive the good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came into the world to save us. To sacrifice himself for us. To live a perfect life that you couldn't live. To die on a cross to pay a penalty you couldn't pay. To give to you a righteousness that you didn't earn so that you can be reconciled back into a loving relationship with God. Not as strangers, but as his family. And that Jesus Christ literally died on the cross completely and was buried in the tomb. And three days, wrote, uh, three days later rose again, literally and physically proven that he is what he claimed to be. God in the flesh and he can do what he promised to do. Save you from your sin and the wrath of God. And all you need to do is repent and turn away from the sin and the consequences of sin in your life and turn to Christ in faith and hold on to him alone and believe the gospel and you will be washed clean of your sins and you will have in that moment everlasting life and fellowship with God forever. The world needs the truth. Number two, in sharing the truth with the world, we need to be realistic and understand that the world will stop at nothing to silence the truth. We need not be surprised. We need to understand, right? We live in a culture that really kind of like downplays and glosses over. It's really easy for us to just almost think that people are really good people to just make some mistakes. It's not like that. This woman convinced her own daughter to use her body to bring about the death of John the Baptist. I don't know how much more depraved you can get than that. People will do anything to silence the truth. They will sue you, they will harass you, they will censor you, they will try to intimidate you, they will arrest you, they will even, even kill you. The world and the devil will stop at nothing to silence the truth. Number three, we must also embrace the truth that truth confronts sin. It's what it does. It confronts sin. There's something in us that wants to like tiptoe around it. And, 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 I, and I get that, believe me. Hear me. Like when I say these words to you, I'm preaching back here, right? But should truth confront sin? If it doesn't, it's not the truth. The truth, no matter how people feel about it, is the truth. And the truth doesn't shy away or hide from sin. It confronts it. And we must be willing to proclaim the truth and confront sin, right? Even when it's uncomfortable. Now, please hear me, okay? Because I firmly believe that we are not called to be unloving, hateful jerks that go out there and hurl insults at people, right? And that we call people names and insult them. That's, we've seen that happen. That's not the way the Bible writes it, right? That's not how it's written. The Bible makes it really, really clear that we are to preach the truth, but we need to do so in love. We need to be loving. We need to minister to people in their needs. We need to be gracious and kind and patient and long-suffering. And we need to endure and, and be incredibly gracious. But even in that, we still must Tell the truth, and, and, and the truth confronts sin. Fourth, we need to be prepared for the fact that following Jesus will cost you something. Now, I alluded to that earlier, but this is where we just really just need to, to just accept it. Following Jesus will cost you something. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and deny yourself and follow me. The world hates 
the truth, and it will stop at nothing to silence the truth. And as Christ's followers, if you believe in Jesus, then you are called to bear witness to the truth, which means at some point, if we're faithful to do what we're called to do, following Jesus by declaring the truth is going to put us in confrontation with the world, and it's going to cost us something. It might be financial. It might be relational. We might lose friends and family because of the truth. We might lose our jobs and business opportunities, or even our status in the community. We might even lose our freedom or even our lives. That's a growing reality in the world. But no matter what, we must be willing to unashamedly speak the truth in love. Fifth, the world ought to marvel at our character. That's the one that's easy to overlook in all this because you see all the darkness here, but there's a bright spot here. Right? Herod right, was perplexed and afraid of John. He, right, and not because he was powerful politically, right? He was perplexed and afraid because this man's character is unimpeachable, which means his words and his character in complete alignment. There's no hypocrisy in him. John, even though that he was still a sinful man, was known as a righteous and a holy man in, in character. And we would do well to be aspire to be like him. Now understand, brothers and sisters, you're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. Right? But you are absolutely called to walk in, in personal holiness and righteousness that you progressively grow in that. Because nothing diminishes the message more than hypocrisy. And so there's no greater witness to live in our lives than, than the power of God to transform our character like it did for John. And finally, we must never give in to the social pressure. Ever. Pressure is going to grow. You read the news, you can see it. We must stand firm that the Bible is inerrant, is sufficient, and it's a source of truth regarding God and who he is and who we are in light of that. It is the rule of faith and practice for us. And if we believe that and live by that, simply by default, it's going to put us in conflict with the world. It's just going to happen because the world hates the truth. And there's going to come a time you know, when, when, when the government and the media and, and our culture and maybe even our own community and sometimes even our own families will apply pressure on us sometimes even violently, to force us to compromise our connection to the truth. We must never give in, ever give in to that pressure. So in light of that, let me just give you the quick applications that we can apply to our lives and take with us. And that is, if you believe in Christ, then we call you today to repent and believe the gospel. If you're someone who's not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you have not turned to him in faith and made him the Lord of your life, Jesus' words are repent and believe. And what that means is you're going down the highway this direction here and you are following the course of your life in your sin and it's ultimately going to a destination that's going to cost you everything. Repentance is, is where you make a U-turn in your life and you turn from that and turn towards God in faith. You take your faith off of yourself and off of everything else that you're believing in. You repent of your sin and, that, and you believe in the gospel and, and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Hold on to him and him alone. We call you to that. Secondly, is if you are a Christian, then we need to obey and go. And all of us have been called to share the hope of Christ with our community and our world. We have all been called to the Great Commission. We are all, if you're a Christian and you're breathing air, you are part of the mission of Christ. And you are to be obedient and go do that. And we do that by declaring and defending the truth and the word of God. We don't just need to know it and memorize it. We need to go declare it. We need to speak it. And we need to defend it. And then fourth, 
we need to remember that the world hates the truth, and if they reject it, then we need to understand it's simply the way it is, and we don't need to take it personal, <laughs> right? And I, and I say that to say, because I take stuff personal really easy, right? We gotta remember, this is the way that it is. Like the sun's gonna come up. It's like getting offended because the sun came up, all right? The world hates the truth. Don't take it personal. Rejection is to be expected because the world hates the truth, so it naturally is opposed to the truth. So don't take it personal. And then finally, finally, be not ashamed. Romans chapter one, just before, John, before Paul says, you know, that people suppress the truth about God, he says in verses 16 and 17, verses worthy of memorizing. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all, for, for those who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God to save those who hate the truth. I want you to hear those words. The gospel is the power, supernatural power of God to break through and save those who hate the truth because it is the power to pierce them and convict them and transform them. So be not ashamed to share it no matter what the world throws at you. Brothers and sisters, be of good courage and be not ashamed and go out into the world and share the hope of Christ because their eternity depends on it. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.